Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. I'm really excited to be able to introduce today's guest, Jeremy, because I feel like so often we see ourselves as a mind and a body. For instance, us athletes, we tend to kind of get a bit wrapped up in the preparation or the the health and well-being of our bodies. And then there's the intellectual creatures amongst us. Well, we might get a bit caught up in our minds. But you see, sitting down with Jeremy today made it very apparent that we are a mind-body. And when I started talking to Jeremy a little while ago about wanting to improve my overall performance, I sort of went in, I guess, with a conception that we'd sort of work on, you know, how to get in that bubble when you're in a race or working hard, you know, how to hurt without getting distracted. Um, But when, you know, when I started chatting to him, what I quickly became apparent is that we need to work on our overall sense of being. And sadly, our sense of being is very much wrapped up in the culture in which we live in, um, the influence of our social media, the way that we were brought up by our parents and therefore the sort of schema, I guess, that we carry around with us. We're also very interested in this podcast about delving into what are the darker sides of performance, what are the costs in which performance comes? Because you see, Jeremy has a background both in sports performance psychology, but also in the psychology of chemical dependency, which is quite relevant for many of us who are high achievers and get dependent on certain tasks or activities or achievements to kind of define our sense of self. And he also is very interested in the way that our brains have developed over time and how really we are living with a primal brain trying to function optimally in a very busy, different modern world and the brain has not caught up. Jeremy runs Eclectic Consulting and he also has a blog called Eclectic Moose. He has written and authored a book, he has or two books, and he has 10 professional papers to his name. He's got a PhD in sport and exercise psychology. He's a qualified scuba instructor, a personal trainer, and has competed in mountain bikes at a state level. We love sitting down with him with his mountain bike shoes under the table and delving deep, deep, deep into what makes us tick, who we are, and why we have developed to be the beings that we are. I know that you're going to love this conversation with Jeremy, so let's jump right into it. into the stigma associated with psychology and why it's it's okay to go for say a gym or a run for your physical health but if you say to someone I'm seeing a psychologist or you know you're looking at the mental aspects of things why that has that stigma associated with it and people almost don't want to talk about it yeah because Kendall you were saying this was your first time ever to even sit in the waiting room of a psychologist and that there is that discomfort even though we're not we're not here to see you as clients, yeah. we're here to interview. What might people think if they walk past and think, oh, that's that crazy woman or whatever. <laughs> no, it's amazing, isn't it? We're, we're, we have this um, perhaps really deeply inset uh, 
unconscious bias around um, madness or what we perceive to be madness. Yeah, um, people who are different. Yeah, um, and we think about it. Uh, who's the most different? It's someone that we can't understand, right? Um, and so we think of mental illness, and we think, oh that person's crazy and they won't understand me and I don't understand them and they're really frightening because they're unpredictable. And that goes back, doesn't it, to how we're pretty much built as human beings, uh, how our brains evolved. Um, I always like to think of, you know, caveman version of me, cavewoman version of you. Um, we pretty much had the same brain for the last 200,000 years. It hasn't really changed since we became homo sapien. And it's just our environment's changed and the technology's changed and culture's changed and everything's got different and more complex. But when it comes down to it, there were three primary things that were important to our ancestors. So enough food, yeah, uh, shelter and safety, and being part of a tribe. Um, being part of the tribe being really important because if you're not part of the tribe, you are dead. Yeah? And so if you then take the uh, idea of being part of a tribe is really important, that means other tribes are potentially really, really scary and dangerous as well. So even more important to be part of my tribe. So other tribes, if they're dangerous, we would need to sort of label them as really dangerous and scary and we need to keep away from them and defend ourselves from them. Um, they're not part of our tribe. Um, and then we can start to easily dehumanize anyone who isn't part of our tribe. So we can do that. We do that with religious persecution. We do that with... Uh, uh, when it comes to racism or ageism or sexism or any other type of ism, and then it's way real easy to do when it comes to mental, we'll call the word mental illness, because they're, they're not even like close to our tribe. They're like really scary, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, as a result, we've got this huge stigma. I don't want to be part of the, the, not, the tribe that everyone thinks is like really scary, and seeing a psychologist equals that. Is so, it? Is that what? Why do? When do you know that you need to see a psychologist? Like, uh, so then it gets really complicated. Because, yeah. No, there's the stigma. And that's that's a different question altogether. I think because sure, there's all the stigmas, all the barriers, and it's not made easy. Look, you know, I've been using this word mental illness. I hate that word. I think yeah. that phrase. It's an awful phrase. Even the the term mental health to separate it out somehow from just being a healthy person. Um, that somehow you know the stuff that goes on in our brains is weird, awkward stuff. I mean, why is one system different from another system? In fact, I mean, there's no division in your body, my body, where you know, your nervous system starts and ends. And our nervous system goes from your tiny you know, bits of your little toe all the way into the, into the skull here. Um, it's just there's more neurons up in, in the skull than there is in other parts of the, the body. Um, sorry, I got... Yeah, no, but do many people come in in a great place going, I just want to be better at what I want to do, or do most people come in at a point of a transition or a crisis yeah. or a turning point? Yeah, so it would be great. I'd love it if my practice was 100% people coming in and saying, hey, I just want to be better at what I do. I think that'd be <laughs> awesome. Um, but no, most people only overcome the stigma of coming to see a psychologist when a crisis happens, and it's only then because they're, they're kind of at their wit's end. So it's not a first line. Uh, it's not like, oh, I'm going through some challenges and I'd really like to know how to do that better. It's, uh, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do and I feel like I'm falling to pieces. So as a last resort, I'll go and see a psychologist. Uh, now, you, you know, it's, 
it's kind of amazing you wouldn't think of doing that to your GP or my legs rotting off I suppose <laughs> I go and see my GP you know you kind of go oh I've got this kind of infection on my leg and it's, it's been there for more than a week and I'm a little worried about it I'll go and see my GP yeah um, and you intervene and you do something about it uh, but yeah there's this, this, this deep down fear of the unknown and what's more unknown than you know the stuff in our own heads um, or more importantly stuff in other people's heads yeah when do you think so like as honey said i've never seen a psychologist yeah. and you know you're going through your life i'm um, working and studying and you get a bit stressed yep. and it is how do you realize that point where you're like well maybe i need some outside yeah. perspective yeah well it's interesting you put it that way outside perspective versus help yeah um and you know it probably turns out you, you've come in here and i don't know whether it surprised you or not i don't really probably look any different to another person. There's mountain bike shoes on the Yeah, table. exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some, some certificates up on the wall, and I actually put those up there specifically because there's good research that suggests that it makes people more comfortable and puts more confidence in this process. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't bother putting them up. Uh, we should try that, Kendall. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so this so is this idea of yeah, when does someone need help versus... Just, sorry, I completely lost that question now. Um, yeah. So when does someone need help versus, um, what's the difference? Yeah, like should yeah. I just come in, see how I'm tracking, you know, have a chat, yeah. or I yeah. get to that point where I'm like, I'm not yeah. coping, I can't do this, yeah. and then I book in. Well, it's, it's a thing. I mean, again, I personally think it'd be, I'd imagine a world where psychologists aren't necessary per se because we grow up learning how to deal with this stuff. Yeah, we grow up dealing with challenges and understanding that they're not necessarily awful things, that emotions are uncomfortable and difficult a lot of the time, but they're not awful, terrible things, that worry is normal, um, that pretty much 99% of the stuff that gets classified as you have a problem um, is actually just a human being having a, norm, having a normal response to a difficult situation. Um, just like, you know, you do a, a particularly heavy training session and you feel really sore, well, that's a normal response. If you overtrain, that's a normal response. Um, if you don't recognize it for what it is, it can become a pathological response, yeah? Um, but if you go, hey, yeah, I've, been, I've definitely overdone it this week and, and there's an onset of overtraining and if I don't take a bit of a break or modify what I do, then it could potentially lead to an injury. Most runners would probably get that at least you'd hope they would or they wouldn't especially in long distance <laughs> running they're not going to stay as long distance runners for long but people don't think that way we're not brought up to think that way when it comes to other aspects of our lives so you know uni stress challenge of exams the whole thing oh, that's, there's very few people who wouldn't experience that as a stressful event as a challenging event but likewise we're not brought up to think hey that's completely normal that's to be expected what attention do you need to put in at that point to make sure that you can get through that event healthily yeah? so that you manage your time more effectively, you get plenty of sleep you eat well, all the things you might do in the context of say training for a, for any other type of a physical event you know, if you're, you're training for a marathon or something like that yeah. So if we feel we're tracking along well then we shouldn't, like we wouldn't need to book in? Well, I, think I, 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 just, find yeah. it really, I just find it really interesting like yeah. is it something Sort of like, you know, you go to a GP for a checkup. If we approached it the same way, mm. would that get rid of that stigma? Because it was just a, you went and you 
had check a check up, you had yeah. to check in, see how uh, you're going. I kind of like that idea, um, especially if in, it takes away, again, that pathologization, that idea that if you're experiencing feelings of anxiousness, that you have a mental illness, mm-hmm. as opposed to going, huh, that's one of nine basic emotions that everybody on the planet feels. Um, and I'm not, by any means, when I say that, I'm not trying to denigrate the idea of anxiety. Um, I don't, I have a problem with the pathologization of anxiety. It's sure, it can become pathological if you get so caught up in it over time that it destroys, or your inability to engage with the world destroys your life. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to say that anxiety destroyed anyone's life. I'd say that what they're... Uh, and I have to be really careful when I say things like this... Uh, I would say that, for example, we use anxiety as a, uh, an example because probably maybe 80% of my clients mm-hmm. have to deal with anxiety in one way or another. Um, I would say that because it got so much of their attention and they stopped doing things because that's a really good way of making yourself feel better when you feel anxious, they started avoiding things, that that had spillover effects in their life and that led to other things and the more they did that the more they pay attention to the anxiety because oh I didn't get rid of this horrible feeling because I've been told that it's a bad thing and eventually that spirals into a point where your life falls to pieces because ostensibly of this feeling Um, but that feeling has got to the point where it becomes so it demands so much of your attention that you've got nothing left to give to the rest of the world that makes me sorry i probably jumped in but i'm really curious because we work a lot with um athletes particularly in the long distance setting who are very very goal driven Mm -hmm. and who put events or goals in place to i guess help in some ways overcome that feeling of anxiety like that that they might experience a negative emotion like anxiety and think gee i'm going to do something to help myself to get away from this anxiety or to move beyond it. Is is goal setting, is putting in place events like that a healthy way to deal with anxiety? That's, that's really contentious. Um, yeah, <laughs> We're I like mean, contentious. I, yeah, the thing is, I, if I just, I, I'll just blurt out something that'll get me in trouble. So um, I would say anything that's a form of avoidance is probably not going to be taking you toward where you want to go, right? Mm -hmm. So I like to split it down this way. Our life is constantly going to be filled with challenging situations, and we do have a choice whenever we find ourselves in a challenging situation, and that challenging situation will come attached with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and urges and sensations and memories and all sorts of stuff, yeah? And this is a probably think for another day but none of those things that I just said urges and feelings and sensations and memories and uh, thoughts none of those are actually under our control we don't actually have control of those things those things come from automatic systems in our brain that we're not attached to or that we're not in control of yeah when I say we that means you know the software construct that I'm, I'm pointing to my the front of my brain here but the software construct that runs on that a complex apparatus in the, the frontal regions of my brain. Yeah, um, we don't have any control over those things, um, and they're going to happen. Those that are going to happen when we find ourselves in challenging situations, or they might be the challenging situation themselves. And we have a choice. In that, do we? Uh, and I always like to think of it in terms of towards moves and away moves. Yeah? So, one option is that 
because let's say anxiousness comes. Oh, we'll use your example. Yeah. So I'm feeling really anxious, and a way I'll overcome that is by setting myself a series of challenging goals, and I'll train really hard for those things. And when I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about my anxiety, so that makes me feel better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, you can say, yeah, that's really adaptive, isn't it? That's great. But it's avoidance. It's a form of experiential avoidance. It's taking potentially... Is that taking you toward the type of person you actually want to be? Or is it taking you away from the person you want to be? And I would think of that in my own life. So what sort of person do I want to be? In the presence of a challenging situation that comes with anxiety, do I want to be the sort of person who can go, yeah, hey, there is a really uncomfortable feeling going on and all these worries going on in my head and I feel really out of depth, out of my depth. Um, But I actually want to be able to engage. I want to be able to focus on the things that matter to me. I want to still be able to interact with my friends and be the type of professional I want to be and be engaged in the recreation that I enjoy and all the other things that are important to me. I don't want to be able to do that in the presence of this stuff. Or do I need to devote a huge amount of my time to making myself feel a little better by you know, distracting myself from that discomfort? Yeah? Now, in my viewpoint, that would be an away move. That would be taking me away from the sort of person I'd want to be because it would give me less time to do all the things that matter to me. The, you know, the genuine stuff like my relationships and my, uh, you know, my, the work that I do and the, the, the mountain biking that I do and all the other things that, I really, that really matter. It would give me less time to do that because I'd have to focus on all this, you know, this training so that I could uh, overcome this challenge and... I don't know, I'll probably feel better for it, but I don't think I'd be moving toward the type of person I'd want to be. So, how do you know then, like you're saying, <clears throat> this is the person I want to be, this is, this is moving away from the person I want mm-hmm. to be, but how does someone listening to this podcast take a step back and go, golly, like, who is the person I want yeah. to be? Yeah. Because that is that... Where's that coming from? Is that an intuition? Is it a values? Yeah, so there's that values word. I I use that word a lot in in my practice. But I use it in my own life. And it's it's a word that gets bandied around, you know, organizations talk about their their organizational values, which usually just come from marketing departments. And um, I don't... It is about values. Uh, To my mind, a value is something that is an, something that's actionable, something that's meaning, directly meaningful to you, that when you do it, uh, it takes you, again, toward this type of person you want to be. You feel connected, you feel satisfied, you feel that you are living a worthwhile life. Most values are attached to challenges, that is, it's harder to do those things. It's difficult to, you know, if, in a, if you want to be particularly good at what you do, well, that's got to involve some sacrifice and some challenge and some hard work and all those sort of things. Um, and that's in the service of what matters to you. So that's worthwhile. That's discomfort in the service of what matters to you. And any athlete will understand that, that training is painful, competition is agony. And why the hell would you put yourself through that? <laughs> well, you always do it in the service of something that mattered to you. Yeah? And if that genuinely is values-driven, that's great. Um, I think, you know, coming back to your point, a lot of the time people will, their, their drives aren't necessarily values-driven. They're more about avoidance. It's yeah. almost like, and I, I can, I'm not preaching from a converted place of bliss over here. Mm. Like, I, I've fallen in that trap so many times. Um where you put a goal or an event in place and then 
a month or two in, you're like, why am I doing this? Mm. And then it gets really, really hard closer to the event where you're like, really, seriously, why am I doing this? And even when you're out there, you're like, oh gosh, (laughs) why am I doing this? It's a really pointed question because if you don't have an answer for that, why are you doing it? I mean, really. I mean, if I think of all the work I've done with athletes over the years and... I don't know. I mean, some of them really, really get it. They really know why they're doing it. It's deeply values-driven. But many of them really aren't sure. Um, Why am I doing it? Well, because I've always done it. Or because I haven't achieved what I feel that I should yet. Um, Which, when the the should is because other people think this, or I think I should do this because maybe it'll... Maybe I'll finally be able to think that I'm worthwhile or, or whatever. I don't know. There's, there's, not, there's not a clear values connection. Um, it's usually a way of making themselves potentially feel better for a short period of time. And if it, there's, a, there's a pretty good litmus, litmus test for that. And it generally comes with when you get what you actually thought you wanted, is that deeply meaningful? Is it really satisfying? Does it connect you to yourself and your greater life? Or is it like, oh yeah, okay, uh, now there's something else I need to do that's even more important. Uh, and that's a bottomless pit. Actually, my, uh, my ongoing supervisor talks about that in terms of hungry ghosts. I really like that analogy. You know, a hungry ghost is insatiable. It may have this deep, deep burning hunger, but it doesn't matter how much it eats, it'll just fall straight through it. It can never take any satisfaction, no nourishment from that, yeah? And you could devote your entire life to feeding a hungry ghost, and all it would do is exhaust you. It would never nourish or satisfy the hungry ghost. It just always want to eat. And many of us carry a hungry ghost around inside us. It doesn't matter what we do or what we achieve or how hard we work, we get no nourishment from it, yeah? We get to, we achieve that thing, we could be world champion. It's like, yeah, but next year I need to be world champion or there's someone else coming up or what does world champion even mean there's, there's, world, there's, there's this whatever there's world championship in another discipline or, you know, and really you you've, you've done that much work and you've tried that hard and you've got to that sort of level and it's not meaningful and you haven't got something from it you need to do something else uh, yeah it's probably feeding a hungry ghost isn't it it's certainly not a value is that escalating do you think in your experience with social media kind of expanding out there everyone's always putting on this you know their best selves Mm. to everyone like Facebook Instagram it's all look at me I I did my training run I felt great look at me I'm out to dinner like my life is fantastic without showing the darker side so then everyone is constantly going well I need to just be my best and show my best and I can't talk about anything it's interesting isn't it have you ever been on holiday and you know it's, it's kind of a nice holiday and you're enjoying yourself but it doesn't look like a Facebook holiday does it you know, when you get someone's doing pictures and, and snaps of, of their holiday and it's like, look at this meal I'm eating or this amazing cocktail or this sunset. And, you know, I'm living this fantasy perfect life. And you look at it and you go, oh, God, why aren't my holidays like that? You, you've had that experience, right? And you're exactly right. We put on this show. You know, we only edit it. We edit down our experience. The stuff we share on social media is going to be this, this perfect thing. And I watch people taking selfies. Um... And you know, people will sit there and take selfie after selfie after selfie until they get the one that they exactly want. And they'll put that one up and look how fantastic I feel today. Yeah. Um, this, the whole social media thing is, is, is a huge trap in terms of our self-esteem and how we feel about ourselves. 
Um, I also think it, it just goes straight through consciousness and hits a whole load of, mm. of uh, automatic systems and we get a little buzz from it. I mean, I, I won't track out the whole pleasure-centered dopamine hypothesis, but more importantly, you know, every time... You think about that social inclusion mm-hmm. thing that we were talking about before, you know, being part of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Every time someone likes a post, you're like, oh, God, I'm part of the tribe. You know, I'm accepted. Um, if you get 50 likes, oh, man, you know, I'm even more accepted. And it, then, then there's social strata, you know, so oh, I've got you know, 500 followers, I've got 5,000 followers. You know, I must be really important. I, I, I'm sorry, I keep jumping in, but mm. my brain is synapsing at a million miles an hour in this conversation. But when you're talking about that, and if we go back to what we were talking about, about values, mm. how do you distinguish what is a true value, yeah. something that you find meaningful? Because some for some people, and you know, maybe I've fallen in that trap that putting that up on social media and waiting to see how many likes it yeah. felt meaningful. It did. It did feel meaningful, didn't it? That's, yeah. the, the, that's what I mean about these automatic systems. And the, this, is, this is my problem, I suppose. This is the ongoing challenge in my own life. And the more I do what I do and the more I study and read and research uh, and work with my clients, I suppose this, this is the eventual trap for any psychologist, is I, I suppose I'm coming to the idea that nearly every thing that we experience um, has no meaning whatsoever. Uh, and what I, I, I kind of need to... <laughs> well, that's yeah, okay. that's, that's okay. um, Here we are in this brain, we live in this brain, and most of that brain is devoted to keeping you alive for the next 5 to 30 minutes. Yeah? So all these automatic survival systems, and they're about those three primary things. Um, food and shelter, and, and there's got to be sex thrown in there, and then being part of the tribe. Um, and all of those things are highly reinforced when we do something that enables us to do more of that and they're highly punished when we do something that enables us to do less of that when I say we're just talking about our experience so you know when someone likes a post you get this feeling of inclusion it feels meaningful that's because the automatic systems want you to do that because it's going to enhance your survival as far as they're concerned yeah Now we're talking about two hundred thousand year old brain. We're not talking about a modern, you know, the world we live in now, because we've still got a two hundred thousand year old brain. Um, so, I reckon that what's going on in here is at least ninety percent of it is all these automatic systems, and that's where social media is so beguiling because it just hits feel good buttons, and it's very easy to confuse that with meaning. Yeah. Um, so the temporary feel good that we get that feeling that we feel temporarily connected and we feel temporarily warm and fuzzy and and the whole but it's all temporary right it doesn't last it wears off really quickly we do this to ourselves all the time you know I will be happy when you ever play the I will be happy when game you know (laughs) I'll be happy when I get that job or that new relationship or the shiny new thing whatever it is I did it the other day Um, I got really excited about a new pair of uh, mountain biking sunglasses you know, these ones these these ones that have uh, this lens technology that's supposed to make the trail pop yeah and I found a really good price and I was waiting for them they were coming from Italy and I was tracking it online and, and it was like I was getting all worked up about it it's like yeah it's going to be delivered today and then it got delivered and I opened it up it's like yeah oh yeah they're kind of nice 
and that's it, you know. No, I'm sure they'd be great on the trail. I haven't had a chance to ride with them yet. I'm fantastic. But it didn't change my life in any way, shape, or form. I got more pleasure from the anticipation of this thing than the actual thing. And now I want another thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm fully aware of this. I'm fully conscious that my brain is constantly doing this. It doesn't make the feeling feel any less immediate or real, right? So, I'm getting there, yeah? No, so the idea not. is... My brain's yeah. <laughs> so the course, this is beguiling. This is really, it's, it's both beguiling and confusing. How would you know what's a genuine value versus a temporary feel-good from an automatic system? Um, so I suppose I've got good news and bad news on this from my perspective. So the bad news from my perspective is you don't and nothing means anything, all right? We're a lump of fatty meat uh, living in the dark. So our brain is just, you know, basically a big lump of fat living in, in the dark, connected to the world through some really inadequate sense organs, which provide really limited information, which then goes through a whole load of cognitive filters to provide us with this massively limited viewpoint of the world. And we call that reality. Yeah. And we get we take that very seriously. Um, so I personally think that, you know, everything's meaningless. There is no meaning to anything. I mean, the only, you know, Richard Dawkins, the, the biologist, would say, you know, the selfish gene, that, that basically our only purpose is to propagate. That's it. Yeah. And we're very good at it. Um, you know, all life is extremely good at, and look what humans are doing, you know? Well, I'm a bit of a pessimist when it comes to this. I don't think we'll be around in 300 years. Uh, I really don't, not as a species, or, or it might be one of those post-apocalyptic, horrible things where we're sort of, you know, a Mad Max scenario. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty, I think we're doomed. But, but here's, the, here's the good news in all of that, right? Humans have the capacity to imagine yeah, and this is the non-automatic part, right? So this is this is the bit that we live in, and I keep pointing at my at the front of my brain here. We're not really sure where we live in our brain, but I'm talking about the software construct that is that we that is the sense of self that is you know when I think about me, that is, and I can say I think this and I feel this and I want this. Um, that's that's my that's that's me, and that's what I suppose what anyone listening to this, that, that sense of self, yeah, it, it's, it takes a lot of processing power to run, and it runs on the complex stuff again in the, in the forebrain, and that's the only bit that gets to make any choices, and that's the bit that can imagine a future, and can imagine the concept of a value, so something that is meaningful, so humans might be, well, I'm not going to say we are, because we don't really know enough about other animal species, but we might be the only species on the planet that have this idea of something that is bigger than yourself, that isn't just about short-term hedonistic pleasure, about getting food and shelter and sex and uh, a connection with the tribe. It's something more. Yeah, so the concept of compassion, of putting others first, um, about doing something bigger. But isn't, isn't aren't the arguments around that, Jeremy, that we can only think bigger than ourselves if there's some form of immediacy or like reward back for us because isn't that the problem with like news media is it's really hard to care about people on the other side of the planet because it doesn't directly affect me yeah and that comes back to that tribal thing because we will so your your if your best friend sprains their ankle um that's a really big deal but if ten thousand people are killed in bangladesh uh oh that's a bit sad I mean, that sounds awful to say that, but that would be your experience. Oh, that's a bit sad. Um, yeah, that really sucks to be them. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry that happened. 
but that's not nearly as important as my friend here with a sprained ankle. And that's just the way we're built, yeah? Um, I suppose this is a little different. This is the idea of being able to take you out of the equation for a little while and to be able to go, uh, the actions that I, I'm going to take an action in the service of something that is, is, how would I put this? That isn't just about fulfilling one of my primary urges. Yeah? Um, and interestingly, that might involve quite a lot of discomfort for quite a long period of time um, in the service of that. So, again, any athlete will understand this. Um, to achieve any type of success in an athletic, you know, we'll, we'll, that's, that's another kettle of fish altogether as well, but let's just go conventional success in any athletic discipline requires enormous amounts of dedication, time, and training, right? It takes huge amounts of effort, and very little of that is going to be comfortable or pleasant. Uh, both of you guys are uh, you know, extreme runners, you, you understand that, that I mean, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> yeah, you get pain, you know, I mean, we're talking pain like the average person will never experience, you know, we're talking deep, agonizing, searing pain for long periods of time, um, but that's all voluntary, you know, you have to choose to do that, you choose to spend hours, potentially, you know, up to, uh, what was, Henny, what's, what's your, uh, mm. when you were training, what Training. Twelve and a half hours is the longest time I've been on my feet for. Okay, and then hours per week in training. Oh, uh, fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Ish. So that's, that's a lot, and it's not it, that wasn't just you know chugging away on the on the recumbent at the the gym or something. It was you know we're talking high intensity, really. Pain. Yeah. So no athletes get it. They're they're prepared to put all this effort into the service of something. Yeah. Now, personally, for, you know, from a sports side perspective, I'd be much more interested in that being in the service of something that's values-driven as opposed to, you know, I want to get you know, approval from the tribe or whatever it might be. But the main thing is uh, this idea of going... I, I, I want to say the word suffering, and I'd be careful with that because... Um, there's oh, a, there's suffering involved. Yeah, <laughs> I, I go with this idea of, you know, the, the, the Buddhists will say pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. Um, so suffering is more of a an interpretation of pain. Um, but I, I'd say, you know, prepared to put yourself through all that discomfort um, in the service of something that means something to you. And so athletes get it in that context, but athletes often don't get it in the context of, say, emotional discomfort um, or putting themselves through other challenges in the service of something that is meaningful. Um, and most of us don't. Uh, so it's a very long way around of saying, what is a value and how would you know the difference? I'd say, well, what is... The difference probably is if you're prepared to put yourself through large amounts of discomfort in the service of something that is deeply meaningful to you, that is lasting, that doesn't just wear off uh, as soon as you've effectively had it or done it, then, then it's probably a value. And those are usually uh, action-based things. So a great difference between a goal and, I always use this example, but uh, between a goal and a value um, a goal would be to say something like, I need more love in my life. I, I want to have more love in my life. Yeah? And you wouldn't have much control over that. That would be directed by others um, or in the, in the hands of other people. Uh, but if you said, I want to be a more loving person, and that's a deeply held value because you could act on that from the second forward. You could go out and be a loving person through being compassionate and understanding and really working on those things. And that might be really hard. I mean, have you ever tried to be you know, deeply compassionate for someone when they you know, cut you off in traffic or <laughs> just do something downright mean? I wouldn't be very good at that. No, no and nor am I. Um, it takes conscious effort mm-hmm. because my, you know, there are all these automatic systems in my brain that will go you know, survival. 
kick in survival. That person is threatening my survival. And so it's much more appropriate from the automatic system, you know, keep you alive the next five minutes to kick out with, with anger. anger. Yeah, so that'll kick in a fight or flight response so you're prepared to go into a battle, yeah? Or, or to, and, and that's useful if, you, if there are bears everywhere or, you know, vicious tribes and, and the like. But that's just not, there's no place for that in the modern world. The problem, you know, if I go global now, the problem in the modern world is that we've got... We're basically, you know, the same as we were 200,000 years ago. We're just wearing fancier clothes in, you know, in a higher-tech environment, but we're still facing the world problems with the same automatic systems, yeah? You mentioned before about living a meaningful, worthwhile life, mm-hmm. and then we've got all these 200,000-year-old primal things yep. we need. What do you define a worthwhile life as? <laughs> but that's entirely up to you and me, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing is, um, only humans are probably the only ones who have the capacity to to actually envisage what that might mean. Um, this is where we we get to make that up, yeah, because it doesn't exist for us in those automatic systems or in nature. Because as far as we're concerned, our needs, our primary needs, are those three things, you know, uh, food and shelter and sex and and, and tribal four things. Uh, a tribal uh, uh, acceptance, yeah? Um, when you get outside of that and you get outside of the automatic systems that want you to, to get more of that stuff, so you get, and so we get out of that immediate gratification that wears off and I've got to do it again and again and again, now we get an opportunity to explore, well, what, what could be meaningful in the long term? You know? um, I don't want to tell people what their values are. I mean, there are some universal values that a lot of people strive toward. So I used the word compassion before. It's a real challenge for most people. It's a real challenge for me. Like, compassion's my ongoing hardest thing um, because my instinct, my natural thing is to go, rah, yeah? Uh, How dare you? Rah, 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 yeah? Um, As opposed to, huh, I can probably see it from that person's perspective. Um, And again, I'm, I'm no Buddhist, but the Buddhists talk about the idea of forgiving the person, not the action. People act because we're human. That doesn't mean that if someone acts in a mean or awkward or downright nasty way, that they themselves aren't deserving of love and compassion and empathy and understanding and all the things that we all feel that we're deserving of. Yeah. This then raises a question. I could go two ways at the moment, but I've learned a zillion questions, but I'll try and go one direction. Um, and that is about this concept in modern society about being putting self first, as in you hear it a lot, like we have to look after ourselves to help others, yep. but then at the same time it feels like, particularly with the invent of social media, that being selfish is a negative thing. Uh, and now there's the, the words you mentioned about being compassionate and self-compassionate. Like that's another big thing in, in vogue, I guess we could yeah. say at the moment. Yeah. So is it okay to take a step back and, and really spend time working on self? Because I think some of these things around identifying values, they're not something I think we could go out and work on overnight. Yep. Well, yep. I'll say from experience, it's yeah. <laughs> not something... And if I... I'd have to be pretty disingenuous as a psychologist to say that no, there is no value in taking time out to look after self. That would be ridiculous. Um, yeah, you, you, you raise a really good point because, again, all these limitations that we have in this neural architecture that we've, that's evolved over, over such a long period of time that we've inherited, um, we have a limited capacity. So it makes, this makes evolutionary sense. We, we're quite good at gauging other people. 
we're actually very good at it. We can gauge other people's emotional. You look at someone, you go, oh, you're a bit off today. You know, we're really good at that. We don't even need to be trained in it. Um, and we're quite good at guessing other people's motives. You know, we get trapped in that. We pretend that we can read other people's minds and stuff. But for the most part, we're, we're not bad at it. Um, but we have a blind spot on ourselves. Um, and that makes evolutionary sense as well. So it makes sense to be able to predict other people. That's really useful from a survival perspective. You know, I always use the example that imagine you know, Ugg's got a sore tooth. Uh, it's probably a good idea to be able to, you know, he gets grumpy, um, you recognize that, and you leave him alone for a day, and that's useful. You know? So that's a really good survival skill. Um, but when it comes to our own stuff, it's actually useful to not spend too much time uh, like thinking about the motives for our behavior because then we second-guess ourselves and we slow down and that could potentially get us eaten. So it, we, the, the deck is kind of stacked against us from the beginning that we, it's hard for us to have any real insight as to what's going on. Yeah? Um, and the whole emphasis of my practice is rather than letting the automatic systems take over automatically is to notice, to stop for a minute to go, oh, it's that that's got my attention. Can I let that happen and still bring my attention back to the present moment and focus on something that's meaningful to me? So coming back to this idea of you know, working on self, um, it's probably the most important thing is to recognize the difference, to, to take time. And this takes a fair bit of time and practice and training. I know I'm still working on it on a day-to-day basis and will be working on this for the rest of my life is to recognize the things that I actually have some control over and the choices that are available to me and then to do something with that. So instead of automatically grumping when I'm feeling grumpy, is to go, oh, yeah, I'm feeling grumpy today. Okay, how would I like to act? You know, my grumpiness wants me to grump. You know? <laughs> and I'm very good at that um, because I've had a lot of practice throughout my life in going with my feelings. Um, but for the most part, that just gets me in trouble. It doesn't take me toward the type of person I want to be. That just makes me unpleasant to be around. Um, it pisses my wife off. It, 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 I don't want to be around me when I'm grumpy. Yeah? But if I can say, yeah, I just happen to feel grumpy today, that's okay. It's quite normal. It's, it's absolutely acceptable for me to feel grumpy. But I don't want to act grumpy. Uh, I am not a grumpy person. I am a person who's temporarily experiencing grumpiness. <laughs> and a, an automatic system happens to be getting my attention. What choice do I want to make today? And that's what it comes down to, is that learning, maybe that, that idea of learning about myself, is learning about, well, how can I actually be myself? And being myself is recognizing the choices that are available to me and taking those choices and those actions. Is this related, this automatic system, to the idea of having schemas? Yeah, so schemas are a really complex thing. It's jargon that psychologists use. Uh, I always, I, d- I tend to not so much use the term schema, but talk about automatic programs. So stuff that we get programmed while we're gr- to do while we're growing up. Yeah, and it's normally adaptations that kids have to do based on the imperfectness of their environment. Because let's face it, none of us escape childhood without being screwed up a little bit. Um, most of us get screwed up by our childhood big time. Uh, and when I say automatic programming, this is like that. so kids will look after themselves one way or another, and it won't necessarily be the perfect adaptation, but it will be an adaptation that helps them get through a difficult situation. Um, and that gets programmed in, and that becomes a default. So, you know, 
as, as horrible as this story might sound, you imagine a five-year-old who has a violent father and that father might come home, this is very stereotypical, but imagine the father might come home you know, in the evening drunk and that kid learns that the easiest, the best thing to do is to hide and then they'll escape being hit or, or sworn at or, or whatever it might be. Um, that's, it's not by any means ideal, it's not by any means even um, you know, something that we would ever want for a child, but it's adaptive. Yeah, it helps that child to survive. And then you track forward 30 years and that child now has that built-in uh, program that activates whenever the, that person is in the presence of anger or conflicts or uh, an authority figure and the instinctive feeling now is to go and hide, physically or emotionally, right? And that's now what we call maladaptive. It's no longer useful. It's not useful for a 35-year-old to run away every time they find themselves in a challenging situation. You know, that's not going to work in adult relationships or in the, the professional life that we have or in athletic stuff. It just isn't. Um, but the instinct is what a schema then is, that automatic program that will kick in and then we feel really uncomfortable and we have a strong emotion and the easiest thing to do is just to go with it. Yeah? Some people will do the opposite. They'll work really hard to try and... Uh, overcome it by doing the you know, working really hard at being the opposite. So someone who feels really awkward in social situations might you know, be deliberately over the top, but it's such a struggle for them. It's a real challenge. They feel like their genuine self is never being met. They're always putting on a mask. Yeah. So with the schemas and the work that I do with my clients with schemas, it comes down to again it's this recognition. Let's treat it like an automatic system. It's a it's an automatic program that's being activated. It will make you feel a certain way. So now the thing is, let's make that conscious. Do I have a choice? I really, really want to run away. That is, let me rephrase that. I really, really feel like running away, but I don't actually want to because I really want to learn how to be more social, for example. And I don't want to necessarily have to do that by putting on a big mask and, and a huge amount of energy and, and, and try and pretend to be comfortable. It'd be way better to learn how to be comfortable even if you felt uncomfortable. Is that possible? Yeah, I really think it is. There's a catchphrase that I use a lot, um, and that's uh, learning... This is not mine, by the way. Um, I've adapted this. But it's learning to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah? Um, it's almost like learning... It's, it's a form of emotional tolerance, um, or any type of tolerance. You know, any athlete will get this. You know, when you're starting off something new, it's really uncomfortable, but after, to after a period of time, that level of discomfort becomes more tolerable. It still hurts, and it may actually hurt as much as it used to, but you're more tolerant of it. Mm. Yeah? And you're probably more compassionate with yourself. Yeah. Because it's I remember we were having a discussion before the podcast, and it came up about compassion and you know, my brain was like, this This is about, oh, I've got a massage book tomorrow. I'm being compassionate. And then you're saying, how is that being compassionate or is that just working on where you want to go physically, like yep. you're, towards your goals, as you've brutalised your body through training and now you're just going to batch it up. Yep. So what what is compassion for people when yeah, they're dealing with this? Yeah, um, so I suppose that one of the things is uh, treating yourself the way that you would often treat other people. So um, you're a coach, and if someone came to you and said, I did my first marathon the other day, 
and I didn't get a sub three hour time and you'd be like uh, are you kidding uh, you wouldn't actually say that you'd be thinking are you kidding how could anyone do their first marathon and expect to get a sub three hour time um, why are you being so hard on yourself um, it's because we don't actually treat ourselves the way we might treat others we have these ridiculous expectations of ourselves um, I was talking to this with a client this morning about, so she, she's struggling with uh, learning how to be a non-smoker. I, I like to put it that way, right? Um, otherwise, it's all about failure and all this stuff. Um, and she, has this, she had this expectation, that all of us would be, that she should just be able to be a non-smoker, you know, after years of being a smoker. And she should just be able to just do that. And that would just be a matter of, you know, she should, right? But... This woman uh, is an extremely competent teacher. And if she, and we, we use the analogy of, if she's working with a child and the child had to learn a complex new thing and the child didn't get it the first time and you said to that child, oh, for crying out loud, how pathetic are you? That probably wouldn't motivate that child to learn the thing, yeah? But if you were patient and understanding and you said, yeah, hey, it's difficult, of course it is. This will take you time to master. It will, it will require some attention and some focus, and it will be quite difficult, but we'll work together to get there. Then eventually, that child will have mastery and will be really good at that thing, yeah? And it's exactly the same with the stuff that we ask of ourselves. So, and, and here she was, this really competent teacher who inherently understood this and, uh, with, with working with children and would always work with a child that way, you know, taking them toward, you know, gently to where they need to be with, with appropriate challenge. Yeah, and understanding, but when it came to self, no, I should be able to do this straight away. We don't. We just don't treat ourselves that way. So and that's the. I suppose. Sorry. I, I, I was no. Just, yeah. Yeah. Is that so? What you're saying is compassion isn't about actions per se. It's more about the your the way. I guess it's your intentions or the way. It, it is about action, but it's more. It's also about um, putting ourselves. You know, compassion, if you were saying, I'm not sure what is compassion, it's kind of being the ability to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But self-compassion, this sounds really weird, putting yourself in your own shoes from an outside perspective. So if someone else were going through this, what would my expectations be of them? And could I direct that to myself? Could I be a little gentler? Instead of that, you know, we all have that internal critic, the nasty one that goes, oh, yeah, 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 you should have. How could you be so crap? Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And instead of order, we usually just buy into it. You know, we take it seriously and we're like, yeah, God, I was so awful and I should have this and I should have that. And then we replay it in our heads over and over again. Instead of going, you know what? Yeah, there is a critic in my head right now. Okay. So I'm sure that critic is trying to be in my best interests. Most of those automatic systems are in my best interests when it comes to, you know, my survival over the next five minutes but not necessarily in my long-term interest. So I'm not going to argue with the critic. I'm simply going to go, do I actually need to listen to that critic right now? Could I maybe attend to something that's a bit more meaningful to me right now? Could I come back into the present moment? Could I go, you know what? Uh, whatever it was that I'm being really harsh about myself, um, maybe I need to take a step back and go, all right, okay, that happened. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to be here. And now I'm going to focus on what I can learn from that and how I can be more effective at it next time. Why yeah. do we have this critic? Like, I'm sure everyone always, you know, oh, I, I should yeah. have done better. This, this, yeah. you know, this, oh, you should have done better. Is that um, legacy yeah. from our 
Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Again, if you think about it, it's probably that one of that built-in thing of fear of being cast out from the tribe. Oh, again, you know, 200,000 years ago, but up until relatively recently, if you were cast out from the tribe, you were dead. That was it. You needed to be a part of the tribe. Um, so this, we have this internal critic that says, be really careful because you might get cast out from the tribe. Um, but I also think we inherit this from our, sometimes from our parents without them really knowing what they're doing um, because they inherit it from their parents and they inherit it from their parents. That, um, in schema therapy, we actually talk about the, the critical parent voice, um, the one that is scolding and harsh and says you should have and, and the like. And we internalize that voice and that becomes our internal voice as opposed to saying that is an internal voice. It isn't my internal voice. It's a representation of, say, maybe the stuff that I learned, an internalized uh, model of the, the critical parent. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I often do this with my clients. We'll actually try and separate out that I'm not talking literal voices. Maybe some people here are literal, literal voices, but separating out the two, is that actually genuinely me? Or is that just a system? Yeah, because, I mean, my first experience with psychology was getting nudged into it mm. fairly strongly, and that, that we talked about it, the stigma that popped up going, oh, gee, I don't need this, there's nothing wrong with me. But when I began working with psychology, I didn't even know I had those voices. Mm. You know, and I always, even if I was slightly aware of them, they were always like, this is helping me because in order to be very good at something, to master something, to excel at yep. something, you have to overcome these voices. Yep. Or, you know, like yeah, and that's reinforcing, isn't it? Because it makes you feel like you're doing something. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it makes you feel like you're doing something worthwhile, even. Yeah. So it, why would we... I mean, this is the thing. It's, all this is counterintuitive. Why would we even think to question something that's going on inside your own head? Um, why would you... Think that if you felt something, that maybe that wasn't the, the most valid thing to act on right then and there. Especially when all those automatic systems actually exist because they did help keep us alive for a long period of time. Yeah? All our ancestors survived because of these systems, um, not in spite of them. So what's the alternative? Like if, if you don't sort of aim for it, uh, you know, uh, my vision for people mm. is that they find their best actual self, mm-hmm. that they feel that they are achieving and striving, contributing yep. at the level that they want to achieve yep. at and contribute at. Yep. So if it's not bulldozing towards that vision, what's the other pathway? Well, no, I like what you said there. Um, I, I would call it, my own conceptualization of it is to call it the ideal self versus your inherited self. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of, well, if I got to choose like the type of person I actually wanted to be, what would that look like? You know, what would, not, I'm not talking about what would you be thinking and feeling because you couldn't see that. So I always like to imagine you know, if we did a video of your life um, and we had this video of this ideal version of you, what would that look like? What would we see on the video? And what would the things that you could actually see yourself doing? Um, and you might be doing those with exactly the same internal thoughts and feelings, but you'd be doing something really different, yeah? So you might be a much more loving person, a more compassionate person, you might be more self-compassionate, you might be more, uh, I don't know, you might be more focused on your career, or you might be more focused on your training, uh, maybe if that's important to you. Or is it the other way around? You might be doing the exact same things, but doing them with a different intention 
as in you might Maybe. be still running that race and still doing that training, but you're doing it in a way where you're more compassionate towards yourself or uh, mm-hmm. towards others or whatever those values yeah. are. Um, no, that also makes sense as well. Uh, the idea being there that the action is to pay attention to the things that matter to you mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the, you know, the harsh critical voice or the strong feeling that is trying to overwhelm you or whatever. And that, yeah, would be a more compassionate thing. You could also be much more aware of the schemas that are saying, oh, you know, to achieve my parents' love, you know, this would be internalised from maybe when you were eight or something like that, to achieve my parents' love, I have to do well in competition. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, that's... That's a sad motive for an eight-year-old, and it's an even sadder motive for a twenty-eight-year-old. Um, but if it was really, if, if again you were doing that, you were racing because you found some really deep personal meaning from the challenge or from whatever it might be. I'm not going to tell people what their value should be. Um, then, and you were getting much more lasting satisfaction from it, rather than oh yeah, I did that. Now I've got to do something else uh, because that's my next. I'll be happy when. Yeah. Is, is it possible, you know, using the race analogy, yeah. just to say I'm my goal is this race and it doesn't have any of this underlying? Like, can you can you be in a position where if someone's listening and they're like, oh, I just signed up for UTA and I, I'm not thinking about any of this, I just wanted to achieve this. Is is that a place that you can be at? Don't see why not. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to ascribe really deep, complex stuff to all of these things. In fact, a lot of the time I say it, there are no deep, complex things. It's just automatic systems. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think we can get really caught down the rabbit hole of everything having to have meaning and value and purpose. And, and, and this is this whole, you know, it's a human right to be happy and happiness is everything. I, I, I don't think there's anything of the sort. I mean, it's a modern luxury, if anything else. Um, satisfaction is different. That's being engaged with what you do and getting some meaning and a sense of value and purpose from what you do. Um, so, yeah, if you want to do a race and you do it and you enjoy it and you got something out of it, well, great. Um, maybe it'd be nice if... I don't know how many people actually do that, but um, <laughs> I think that would actually be pretty pleasant. So if I had a curly question, though, on the other end of the spectrum from Kendall's question mm. of, like, can you just sign up and be, I guess, happy-go-lucky in some respects, what is the foundation of excellence, like true excellence? Someone's mastery in their world yeah. of what they do um, probably an enormous amount of sacrifice okay. um, I think you probably take any human being and train them to be excellent at anything with enough time and enough appropriate instruction that whole thing of you remember a while back Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing mm-hmm. it's largely being debunked oh um, really 10,000 hours is not the same as 10,000 focused hours so you doing 10,000 hours of something with just doing it is not the same as 10,000 focused hours with feedback and real intensity and uh, you know, careful instruction and all those sort of things. But yeah, you can probably take any human being and train them to be excellent at something. But it's going to come at a cost. Yeah, um, it's, it's going to be really difficult to... It's going to be really difficult to get there. It's going to be really difficult to sustain. And we just can't do a whole lot of things excellently. Some people can. Well, I'd say maybe one in 100,000 people can. Maybe one in a million people can, um, but that's rarely rare. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I get really confused when I think about this because it implies also, even the, using the word excellence, 
you know, suggests that that is the epitome, is the perfection. Um, and yeah, I suppose when you look at it from the outside, it kind of is. You watch maybe you know the greatest athletes doing their thing, and it is beautiful to watch. And that's the end result of an enormous amount of dedicated, a huge amount of training and sacrifice and effort. Yeah, but it's kind of an immense cost. That person that is, I don't know, is that a fulfilled person? I'm not. I'm not by any means taking it. Uh, suggesting that it isn't worthwhile because if a person chooses to do that and that's what they dedicate their life to absolutely that's great um, but it won't be sustainable either so again there's that whole thing and there's this huge thing that I find working with athletes a lot of the time is that so I even if I achieve that excellence now that excellence is over and I've got a, a rest of my life to get on with and what does that look like and how the hell would I do that um, and and now I have to be. Do I have to be excellent at something else because I don't want to do that? Yeah. How do you think, like a lot of you know, athletes or whatever you're doing, there's this excellent at the top that is you know, the Olympian or yeah. you know they are the best at this particular thing. Yeah. And then we go and do the best that we can, but it always feels like yeah. even though it's our best, it's still not quite good not enough. Quite so you're like. Enough. You talk to people and they'll be like, oh, I've only, I've only done 50 kilometer race yeah. or I've just done this. And yeah. then for someone else, they're like, what do you mean just or only? Yeah. Like, is there always that sense of our excellent or yeah. our mastery of something just isn't good enough? Yeah, I, I, I suppose it comes back to that tribal thing, you know, um, where you are in the tribe. It kind of matters. You know, like again, from a very basic perspective, further up in the tribe, you've got more privileges, didn't you? Um, in terms of mating privileges and better food and all the other stuff, it meant you were more likely to survive. And so that's sort of motivates at a really basic level all these things. And it's so easy to infect. Um, do you guys use Strava? I know Strava, I don't use it. Yeah. I don't agree with it. I to got be infected honest. by Strava. Because <laughs> um, in mountain biking, it can be a really big deal. Mm. Um, and, you know, ranks and the whole thing. And, and I, I, I remember, I wrote a blog about this a while back, and I have basically in my mind's been hacked by Strava. And um, I, I got back from a ride and the app crashed halfway through and half my ride hadn't happened and it was like it had completely invalidated it, you know it happened to me the other day I, these days I like to tell myself you know I'm really overstrong I still use it but I use it for information only that's the story <laughs> I tell well, I got back from a ride the other day and I felt a, a, a trail I'm really familiar with and I do happen to have the top ten, I'm in the top 10 on Strava on this one it's the only one I'm on um, and I, I felt really good on the trail. I felt like I was really fluid and I was pumping through things and I was really focused in the moment. I felt really good. And then I got home and I checked my Strava time and it was like eight seconds off my personal best. And instantaneously, that, that, all that meaning that I had from being really absorbed in it and, and feeling like I was really riding my bike well instantly went bang uh, because there was the, oh God, I, I haven't achieved something here. I'm... I, it, my my effort was meaningless, yeah, because it until I came back to myself and went, hang on, let's just come back and come into the moment again and, and recognize what you were doing and why, you know, why do I mountain bike? Do I actually mountain bike for Strava times? No, no, fundamentally I don't. I do it because it absorbs me and it puts me in the moment and it's social and it challenges me and it's uh, it helps me overcome some of my fears and it pushes boundaries and it. And the list goes on and on, and it's not about Strava times. 
it's very easy to get hecked with it. And Strava is just, and the reason it's so popular, and it's an amazing program, and it's absolutely really, really useful thing, but it's so popular because it hacks straight through and it goes in that achievement thing, doesn't it? So, you know, it must like be... the crown. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the KOM or the, the QOM or the, um, the equivalent for the running in Strava. Um, and the, the problem is, you know, I'm 46 now, um, even though you can do age-related ones, you know, from, to get into a top 10 is virtually impossible. Um, and uh, the, if, if our life is constantly about being compared to others and our achievements, then there's, you, you know, you, you've experienced this, Hannah. You can be world champion, and that's not good enough because there is someone better than you or someone potentially better than you. Yeah? It doesn't matter how good you are. There is always someone who is potentially better than you. And that's for the, for the rare people who get to the very, very top of something. I'm never, ever going to be anywhere close to that, nor is 99% of the population. And why should that matter? Yeah, I, I, I've redefined excellence yeah. since I won my world title, which was a long while ago now, 2006. Mm. Because back then, excellence was reaching the top of the tree. Yeah. You know, and it was very unfulfilling, I would say. I'm very grateful for it. It's taken me places. But my new definition of excellence is... Um, achieving in things with that deep sense of satisfaction, mm-hmm. I guess. And that's what, what you're talking about, that if you can do the hard work potentially with someone like yourself to understand your values, potentially recognise schemas, yep. understand where goals fit for you. I'm not actually sure whether you believe in goals. Yeah, goals are really useful if, if they're underpinned by values. So okay. what goals can... I work on today in the service of my values. That take yeah. me to, yeah, yeah exactly. towards the person that yeah. I want to be. Yeah. So if we were to, so yeah, because I, I follow a, um, a sports psychologist who has his own podcast called Michael Gervais. I mm-hmm. think we've talked about him a little bit, Jeremy. And um, he is very, he's not afraid to kind of unpack all the layers on people, even these like world-class Olympic champions unpack the layers, help them to identify self so that when they get back towards being good enough to excel, it is a true excellence, like it's a mm-hmm. lasting excellence. Yeah. And he calls that mastery, mm-hmm. where you're at the top, you obviously really believe in what you're doing and you can stay there for a period of time. Yeah. But my question for you is, that doesn't address the transitions that happen when that excellence is no longer relevant mm-hmm. or it's no longer able to occur f- yep. through injury, for yep. instance, or a woman gets pregnant yep. or they change tact in their yep. life. I feel like modern society pushes us towards trying to get the best out of ourselves, but then kind of it gets cut off there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that's, that's really important, this whole idea of, I think, finding something that is, and I use this word a lot, sustainable and also meaningful, um, requires the removal perhaps of ambition, which doesn't remove the, doesn't remove the ability to engage in mastery or to improve, but if it's being done for I want to be the best that I can for now, and that's going to be good enough for now, and it doesn't have to be in the comparison with others or my past or future self, it's just doing the best I can at this point in time with what's available to me. Um, but not using that as an excuse either. So I was like, oh yeah, good enough. 
as opposed to, you know what, I was really engaged in what I did just then, and it wasn't perfect, and it wasn't brilliant, and it wasn't necessarily the best I've ever done, or will be the best I've ever done, but it, I was really engaged and absorbed, and I was, I was there. Um, and that really, that's, that's lasting, and that inspires us to, to engage more. Um, I found that over the years, and now doing what I do, after years of academia, it was all about, oh, I've got to publish another paper, I've got to get this grant, or I've got to become a full professor. That's really, really important. And that's all gone. I'd much rather put the time into being much, much more present and much, much more available and much, much more effective at what I do on a day-to-day basis. Not just in session with my clients, but in my entire life. You know, so when I'm out on a mountain bike ride, yeah, I'm not going to get Strava times. That doesn't matter. I want to push myself a little bit. I was going to say harder, but that's <laughs> not actually what I meant. Um, is to is to is to make myself more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Eh? <laughs> so something that would might potentially scare me is to work up to how could I uh, how could I potentially do that thing that scares me um, within realistic stuff. You know, guys literally less than half my age will do these massive gaps and jumps and stuff like that. And you know what? I, 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 maybe I could do that. I don't want to do that. One, it's terrifying to me, but two, I'll probably hurt myself in a way that I won't recover from and they might. Yeah. Um, so it's more about in, so that whether it's mountain biking, whether it's in, in, in session, whether it's just walking in the street, whether it's in my relationship, whether it's having a beer with a friend, whether it's doing this right now, it's, am I here? Am I engaged? Am I working with all the things that I have available to me? And that's deeply satisfying. And is that sustainable? Do I, you know, can, I, can I keep that going for a period of time rather than having to fight myself and struggle to keep it going? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, finding the things that are meaningful, taking on the stuff that is worthwhile in my life. That's so much more interesting. Yeah. It's hard for us to recognise when that transition is... is um, when it when it's right to start making that transition. But at the very end there, you started mentioning when it when it starts to feel difficult, when it starts to become a struggle. Is that a point where we at least consider transitions? Sure. Um, yeah, that's that's such a hard question to answer. Um, when does an athlete, or anyone for that matter, who's achieved excellence in, a, in something say, oh, maybe it's time to do something else? Because it kind of is, I suppose, if we're talking about world-level excellence, then it is an all or nothing. You can't be a little bit excellent and be a world champion. Um, yeah. You can't you know, go half-time um, on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's a really important thing. In the, in the past, I'd worked with clients to sustain that for as long as possible, and now I'd work with clients to balance out their life as much as possible so that the choice isn't so black and white, mm-hmm. so that they're not giving one thing up and having nothing in return. It's, well... I've put an enormous amount of my time and effort into this part of my life, but I've also been working on these other parts of my life, and those are meaningful too. And I don't have to have world-class excellence in those, but I can still engage in terms of more and more mastery by being present and being focused. And all those I was going to say, do you find that the byproduct at that pointy end yeah. is that their performance actually improves? Uh, possibly. Yeah, not always, but it can. Um, sometimes when they just let go of all the the other uh, external drives or the, the external drives that they're taking on as internal drives and they just chill a bit and go, you know, it's not as important, the pressure's off. Yeah, um, a lot of the time that, that, that can happen. Um, but, you know, there's also the realistic aspect of um, 
there's so much work and effort and training that is required to stay at the pointy end. Um, sometimes, yeah, that, that performance gauge might go up for a little while, but it, it, it won't last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, I suppose it's coming to terms with the facts for any athlete at the pointy end is, um, is this something I'm doing for me? I mean, as in, is, am I actually getting value from this? Is it, is it meaningful? Or am I just going from short-term I'll be happy when to short-term I'll be happy when? And um, gauging my sense of self and happiness around those little or big achievements that lead to another achievement, lead to another achievement. Um, and going and making a really values-based decision about is this the person I actually want to be? Um, and you know, for, people will often blame athletes. How could you drop out? You know, you had so much potential. How could you not stick around? Uh, it's like, well, why the hell should they? You know, if if a person comes and says, you know, I've done this, even if they were you know one-time world champion, it's like even uh, one to what's the difference between one-time world champion and seven? You know, um, but to be able to then go, hey, you know, I did that, and that's a really important part of my life, and that's something that happened, and now there are other things that need my attention that are potentially more meaningful to me, um, and that's okay. How are these external pressures influencing in those transitions? So an elite athlete decides they don't want to do that anymore, or even your transition to mm-hmm. wanting to you know, be more present, you start transitioning to that, and then you get all that external noise saying you no don't do that you yeah. you can't do that you need to do that especially when it comes from teams or coaches yeah. or sponsors yeah. like if you look yeah. at the swimming situation at the moment I mean there's many of the swimmers who were elite when I was sort of coming through the yeah. ranks so younger ones like the Ian Forbes of the world they're yeah. They've really seen their struggles pulling through that transition away yeah. from elite sport. I don't think you know. Again, this 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 is one of the reasons why um, I do less elite work these days. Um, when I see all the infrastructure around what it takes to turn a young person to an elite athlete, so much of it is so unhealthy. Yeah. Um, it's not about helping that person to be really rounded, balanced, uh, to achieve mastery for their own sake, to be able to make appropriate choices. It's all about you should and you must. Um, it's almost this, this horrible ancient idea of you know for king and country, um, you know the nationalistic rubbish that happens around the Olympics, uh, you know, representing your country and, and that sort of stuff. It, it, it makes it really hard, and if you've grown up with that and all this external stuff, uh, it's easy for me to sit here in my mid-40s and, and say, oh yeah, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, but if you're in your early 20s and you've had nothing but external pressure, how do you make that decision for yourself? Yeah? And, and I don't think any of the blame can be placed on the athlete. Not not 1%. Not uh, it's all the systems around them. It's the coaches and the educators and the administrators and the sponsors and the marketers and you name it yeah you've lived and worked overseas Mm -hmm. so UK USA and France and France is it is it the same here in Australia or is it different is it worse is it better like is it a global problem the nationalistic jingoistic stuff is I think universal Um, the Brits do it the French do it big time the Americans are really big into it um, and Australians are really bad at it in terms of they, they, they do it really heavily. Plus, we have the tall poppy thing. Yeah. Um, so we like to 
Uh, but then look what happened to Lance Armstrong. It's not universal to It's not sorry. I should say it's, it is universal. It's not unique to Australia. Um, we like to blame the people we put them up, and then oh my God, they disappointed us, and now we need to cut them down. Um, yeah, it's, it's. I think it's pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty tough. And is that like that's a dark side of performance, which could yeah. be applied to even someone training for a race, and you know they're seen as selfish because they've taken time away from their family yeah. to do all this training, and then they have a bad day, they don't perform, something goes wrong, yep. and then suddenly everyone on the outside is like, you've just you know, sacrificed all this time with yep. your family, your job, yep. to do this, and then you didn't even execute it. I know, you it, get it, it sucks, doesn't it? I mean, this, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, I wrote about this a while back, again, in my blog, this idea. Um, we often look at elite athletes and we say, oh, God, they're so arrogant. Look at how arrogant they are. And I kind of think, well, yeah, they kind of have to be. It's a survival strategy. It's a really cool hack to amplify your sense of self-confidence and if you've been doing that since you were 16 years old and that's been reinforced over and over again why wouldn't you turn out that way yeah hypothetically though hypothetically yes do you believe it is possible to achieve your greatest potential and have the balance yes yes i do i'll say that unequivocally i I absolutely do yes uh but it would require a lot of eyes open, conscious stuff. And here's the catch. I wouldn't have had any of that available to me in my 20s. I, I mean, I'm not just saying, you know, when you get older, you get wise or anything like that. It's just more about um, the things that matter to you change. Um, so maybe, I, I don't know, I, maybe in my 20s, maybe if I had a, if not that I had potential to be an elite athlete or anything like that, I don't really doubt. So um, maybe if someone was brought up with the appropriate messages and was trained from the beginning to be able to think for themselves and understand values and understand how to be able to be comfortable with discomfort and how challenges work and all those sort of things and, and encouraged with balance in their lives from the beginning, which is always going to be a challenge. How do you fit in training and school and life and friends and all the other things that matter? Um, but in, that encouraged from the beginning, yeah, I think it can be done. So if we spin that round then to people who might be listening who are striving for their version of excellence and it's not the elitist mm. tip of the tier, yeah. there is a way to find some degree of balance and be striving towards your yeah. bigger goals that are based on your values yeah. or underpinned by your values. Yeah. Um, yeah, and be able to do it in a healthy way. I absolutely, I totally believe that there is, and that would come down to being aware of what's going on, being aware of what your resources are, being aware of your values, being conscious of all the automatic systems that are trying to make you do stuff uh, to keep you alive for the short term, or what they think is going to keep you alive for the short term, and the systems that you're in, and all the other stuff, and then making conscious decisions, choices about how you want to act in that moment, that allows you to be in that moment. So... It could be as, as simple as, you know, you're going out for a, for a, a two-kilometre jog that might take half an hour um, at a really slow pace. Well, that could be a deeply meaningful experience if you're there and you're doing it because you want to be there and you recognise it would be really uncomfortable, but that's okay because here I am doing something that I have chosen to do for my reasons, not because my doctor told me or because I feel like I should lose some weight or because I don't feel adequate because I don't think I look good or something like that, but rather because I have chosen to do this because I want to do it, yeah? Um, because it has some meaning to me. Mm. Mm. So really focusing on, I guess, differentiating between the internal and the external, 
is really important. So you like you know the doctor, the GP. That's yep. you know that's external. You need to have that intrinsic. Yeah, and that, but yeah, I have to be careful when I say that because you know, the the messages from the doctor and the GP or, or other people in their lives can have a lot of value. You know, if someone says you really, really want to stop smoking, or you're going to die, or you know, um, you you need to to modify your diet, you're going to get adult onset diabetes. Well, there's 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 a lot of value in that message, but people that that isn't going to last. Is what we call an extrinsic and intrinsic um, motives, um, but. Yeah, that scare isn't going to last. If it's you, if you're doing it for your own purposes, if you say, you know what, yeah, he's got a point, but actually the really reason I'm going to engage with this exercise or this, you know, looking after my diet or whatever it is that I'm going to do uh, is because that's deeply meaningful to me. I actually want to be healthy. I, 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 t- I put place value on that. Um, and these are the choices that I'm going to make to do it. And I recognize there's going to be some discomfort in that and it's not going to be about short-term fulfillment. Um, then, yeah. Then, then that's doable and we need to be aware of the differences rather than ex- we often like to outsource our motivation you know someone it's your job to motivate me you're the GP you should tell me well and I get that all the time as a psychologist yeah, it's your job to motivate me to change my behaviour no not really um, but it is my job to support you in learning how to be able to make it your decision yeah Meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. How important is that in achieving this? Um, motivation. Okay, so mindfulness, yes. Uh, meditation, no. And I say that for someone who actually has a, who meditates and puts a lot of value on meditation. Uh, mindfulness, though, has become a really woo-woo term in recent years, and become this whole, I don't know, I think most people think they're practicing mindfulness and really practicing distraction. Um, mindfulness means voluntary focused attention in the presence of distraction. So here are all these things going on, internal, external thoughts, feelings, sensations, urges, memories, external distractions, pressures, etc. And that's happening and I can accept and make room for those things that are happening and I can still voluntarily choose to focus on the things that matter to me. That's mindfulness. Yeah? and I can choose to be in this present moment in the presence of all that other stuff yeah? that's mindfulness um, so that's incredibly important that's a mm-hmm. fundamental skill for a human being because it allows us to make choice if I'm here in this moment and I'm actually here in the presence of all the other stuff that would normally get my attention then I can make a choice and I can make that choice genuinely and I can make that choice that takes me toward the type of person I want to be so that's mindfulness um, meditation can be lovely it can be extremely powerful it can have wonderful effects. There's a lot of very uh, convincing research that suggests that it has all sorts of beneficial effects for us. But I challenge most people to actually sit for half an hour every day. It's a real challenge. I find that a real challenge for myself. So making that a core and saying, you will not be able to achieve what you want unless you meditate 30 minutes a day. No. That's not necessary. How do you achieve mindfulness then? All of these things going on and then to be present in the moment. How do you learn that? It's a challenge, isn't it? (laughs) How do you learn it? That's a great way. Yeah, not how do you do it, but how, how do you learn it? And we learn it by two things, right? So there's the ability to notice what's going on. That has to come first. We call that metacognition or meta-awareness, yeah? Awareness of awareness or awareness of cognition. Um, so that's starting to separate out. So we do this little grounding exercise where I might go, okay, I am going to notice the feeling in my feet. Right? Not I'm going to feel my feet or I'm going to notice the feeling in my feet. So I'll go with that and I'll say, okay, can you notice the difference between 
the amount of pressure you're choosing to place down there, that's under your control, versus the feeling that's coming back, that's not under your control. So one is what you can do and one is what you can't do. And now let's go up and like roll your shoulders back. Go, okay, can I notice my shoulders? Yeah, oh, there's a bit of tension in there. Okay, that's not under my control, but I can choose to have a little stretch right now. All right, that's under my control, and I'm noticing that. Yeah. So now I'm going to take a breath, and I'm noticing the breath. So I can choose how deeply that breath goes and how long that breath goes on for, but I've got no control over the feeling associated with it. So I can notice the difference. Yeah. So now I'm starting to attend to the stuff that is under my control versus stuff that isn't. Yeah. And then I could look around the room and I can notice five things. And I could go, okay, that's that, and that's that, and that's that. And I can label those things. And now I'm starting to go, okay, I have control over what I look at and what I label, but I have no control over what I actually see. Yeah. And then there's, I'll, let's say there's three noises uh, outside. I'm like, what are three noises I can hear? You know, uh, traffic and this and that. I have no control over those things, but I can label them and I can notice them. And while all this stuff is going on, I can also notice that I am here. I'm here now and that stuff is going on and I have control over what I am noticing. So maybe at the same time there's some thoughts going on in my head, worries or whatever things are trying to pull me away, so I can notice those as well. And I could still just notice them like they were noises, and I could choose still to be here in the present moment. And maybe the same with feelings that are going on in my body, or sensations that are going on in my body. I start to label them effectively. There is the thought of, there is the feeling of, there is the sensation of. Just like there is the noise of, there is the, the, the feeling of. Yep. And once we've got that, that's the meta-awareness, we can start to choose our attention. Now I have control over, so, you know, when we get better at this, we might be able to go, right now I notice there's a strong feeling of anger yeah, in my body. My choice now is to act in a way that I want to act. And so I could, for example, go, oh, well, one thing I can do right now, I have control over, is I could get my breathing under control. Yeah? It doesn't feel like I can, but I can. I can do that. And I can notice some stuff around me. And now I can notice that, actually, because I'm here in this moment, I have a strong urge to shout at that person, but I don't actually want to do that. I'd rather do this, and now I'm going to do that. That's mindfulness. So it's bringing yourself to a conscious awareness of your place in the now, your, the yeah. way you can choose to act in yeah. the now, and even yes. everything going on around you. Yeah, yeah, even, yeah. In the presence, in the presence of all this stuff that would usually get our attention and effectively it's all the automatic systems that would usually drive for you mm-hmm. and it's you going oh that's an automatic system that wants to drive I am going to choose to drive I can't control what the automatic system does I have no control over that but I have control over what I do and I often say this to my clients and it freaks me out but it's kind of cool at the same time the only thing I have control over only thing apart from the things I notice I have control over that and the only physical thing that I have control over is some physical muscular or skeletal muscular contractions that's it. So I can choose to move my hands, my legs, and my arms, and my mouth, contract my vocal cords. That's it. Uh, I can't actually control anything else. I can do a lot with that. But if I notice what's going on, and then I choose what I do with those muscular contractions, all well, that can be pretty powerful. In some ways, people who are athletic could use their athleticism to their advantage to train mindfulness, because there's a lot of it's, it's a little bit simpler when you're out there and you, you're constantly bringing yourself back to what you're doing in the now mm-hmm. um, when you're in sport. Like I'm just thinking about a positive application because otherwise 
I don't know when this would get my attention, you know, on a busy work day when you're picking up the kids or yep. you're trying to make dinner and, like, it'd be hard to find that awareness, I'm guessing. That's a great place to start. You know, back before the mindfulness thing, back in early sports psych stuff, we used to talk about, um, uh, it's such a long time since I've thought about this, uh, but the different types of uh, attention that we pay, out on, say, out on the trail, yeah? So there would be... Um, Active, uh, so uh, sorry, active. Oh, I'm trying to remember this stuff. There would be passive dissociation and active association. So, passive dissociation would be to try and, you know, you're in pain, so you're just going to imagine you're somewhere else, and that's a really crappy technique thing. If you're a runner and you're imagining you're somewhere else, uh, that's yeah, a guarantee. That's, that's not going to last. You're going to trip over yeah. something. You're going to something's going to go wrong. But it takes your mind off the pain. Yeah. But there's this active association idea of being able to say, here I am, here and now. So my job, even though I'm in a lot of pain, is to focus on my gait mm-hmm. or my footfall or mm-hmm. my breathing rate or my sh- the tension yeah, in my shoulders. Yeah, that's what I was getting yeah. to. Um, yeah. And that, that's mindfulness. Yeah, Again, that's, that's a good. deliberate choice in the presence of stuff. Um, so we were using that stuff long before the word came yeah, into yeah. popular usage. Yeah, it's just and it's pretty powerful if you do find a place to do that. There's a very quiet brain that can happen out there. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is kind of a form of meditation. Yeah, it's um, active meditation we call that. Yeah, yeah, and meditation can be the tool to help you build this mindfulness. Oh, look, yeah, I mean, I, it might have sounded a minute ago like I was you know, a bit anti-meditation. I'm not for a minute, but it's not a panacea. It's not the be-all and end-all. Just because you sit and meditate for 30 minutes isn't doesn't mean you're going to be mindful in the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It can help, and that does have spillover effects, and it's very calming and very pleasant, and it can help to train you to be able to notice stuff and come back into the present mm-hmm. moment, if that's what you're actually doing when you're meditating. A lot of people aren't. They're just chasing their thoughts around their heads. Or falling asleep, yeah. And that's not practicing mindfulness meditation. That's sitting there for 30 minutes chasing your thoughts around or having a snooze, yeah. And if you're (laughs) going to have a snooze, don't call it meditation. Have a snooze. Snoozes are fun. Snoozes are great. They're really healthy for us. But it's probably worth, if you're going to learn to meditate, learn to meditate, actually do a course on mindfulness meditation. Use Headspace or something like that to, uh, Yeah. yeah. I think we need to wrap, but I've got a few curly questions for you. Yes. My first one is what drives you, Jeremy? Like, you come across incredibly engaged in what you do, and it's awesome, it's super inspiring. Um, but what drives it? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I want to, uh, of course, I'm supposed to say my values. Uh, <laughs> no, and actually, I suppose it really comes down to that because I get a lot of satisfaction and meaning from being engaged in what I do. So it's self perpetuating. The more time and energy and focus I place on the things that I find meaningful, the more meaningful they become, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's become easier for me as I've become older because there's less struggle. I don't have to force myself to do this anymore. Uh, even if I'm tired, I don't have to fight the tiredness. I just go with it, uh, and that's kind of cool. Um, so that I find really, really useful. Um, are there any other major things that drive me? Uh, these days, not really. It's more just, you know, it's what I like. I don't know, that sounds really pathetic, but it, 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 it is. It's, it's just, this, it's fun. Yeah, this is fun for me, being engaged and being in the moment and being really passionate about something. That's about as fun as it gets for me because I'm here. I'm not worrying about the future, which is my default setting, yeah? worrying about what's going to happen next. That's not fun. I get no pleasure from that. 
Um, it's not meaningful. It's not sustaining. It's just tiring. Yeah, but that's what my brain will do on default. Yeah. So the ultimate of being engaged and passionate in the present moment, that's a lot more fun. It's a lot more sustaining and it's a lot more meaningful. I suppose on the flip side of that, how do you deal with, I guess, failure in either, you know, you're not present or connecting or, you know, maybe a client you're not connecting with how you'd want to. How do you deal with that? Well, yeah, um, there will be a part of my mind that says, you have failed. You know, it happens to me all the time. A session will go, not the way I'd hoped. Or, or a client will drop out. It happens, of course. Um, and then there's that scolding thing that says, you have failed. You're a terrible psychologist. How could you even think you just like, give up now? Um, and you know, and then there's the, the other part of my mind that will come up and say, yeah, but what about this and what about that? And I don't want to play them off against each other. In fact, I'd rather just go, okay. So, yeah, there's something to be said for that. I really wasn't present in that particular situation. Um, or I really could have gone down a different track. I don't have a time machine, so I can't go back. Um, but I would like to learn something from it. Yeah. So rather than dwelling on it and going, oh, God, it was awful, I'm really crap would be to go, well, okay, so what can I take from that? Um, I'm sounding all very self-helpy guru at the moment. I don't want to be, but but it really does come down to that. Putting less of my ego on the line and saying I am a bad person because I did not uh, perform at maximum intensity or, or do the best that I possibly could, but rather simply saying I was probably, well, if, if it comes down to it, yeah, I was distracted. You know, why was I distracted? What was I struggling with? Yeah, because we went to a talk the other night, Kendall and I, and someone was speaking and said that there is no such thing as failure, there is only feedback, yeah. which is really what you're probably saying there. And yeah. that sat, certainly sat with me well. I, I got my, my And there are times right when it doesn't matter what I can do, you know? I could be the most switched on, amazing, full on, I am on fire, and one particular client, it may make no difference whatsoever. Yeah. Um, they might leave anyway. Maybe they don't like me. I, mean, I, can't, I don't have any control over that. And so not getting so caught up in that and taking it personally. Um, and in fact, in many areas of my life, you know, there are lots of things where I don't actually have any control over it. So instead of taking it personally and going, oh, God, you know, it's all my fault, I'm a failure, that sort of stuff, just going, well, hey, that happened. Um, maybe I need to focus on the things that matter. Greatest fear. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, straight up it would be the one that gives me a blush response, and that uh, would be that feeling of shame, you know, the, the feeling of being caught out as a fraud, you know, somebody saying, uh, or coming out there, oh yeah, this guy's full of shit, or he doesn't know what he's talking about, or whatever. That's, that's probably my biggest uh, subconscious, irrational fear. And it goes straight into what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, fear is definitely there. I'm not going to be able to, because all fear is, is coming from a different part of my brain. I don't have any control over that. Um, and when it comes down to those core, oh, I'll be exposed to fraud and I'll be cast out of the group. That's an atavistic fundamental <laughs> fear, yeah? Um, so just naming it and going, yeah, that's there. That's okay. Um, that kind of helps. Yeah. But yeah, that, that'd be it. And so if, if there was one, the last... The lucky last question that I have at the moment is, on the other side of that, is what's your greatest aspiration, or do you have an aspiration? Uh, yeah, I used to have lots of aspirations. I was going to be the full <laughs> professor by the time I was 35. And, um, no, um, these days my greatest aspiration, again, this is going to sound also very 
tweet um, is just to be satisfied, more satisfied, yeah. Um, in the last five years, I've actually recognized for the first time in my life that I might actually be satisfied, um, even though I haven't achieved all the things that my younger self thought I would. Um, and I'd like, my greatest aspiration is that a future version of myself would be even more comfortable and satisfied with who he is. Um, mostly because of the actions that he's continuing to take on a day-to-day basis that are more aligned with his values. Yeah. I think we've got some homework to do, Kendall. Yep. <laughs> no, it's an awesome place to finish. I think it, that one resonates with me strongly as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.